Romans. I read uh, Galatians chapter 3, uh, verse 28, though I'll read verses um, 26 through 29. The focus of the sermon is verse 28. And hear the word of God. For you all... For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And let us pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the teaching of the Apostle Paul your inspired servant, uh, an instrument by which you bring your word to us. And we ask you now that through the preaching and through the hearing that the word might be uh, brought home to the hearts of the people. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here is an occasional or a standalone sermon. We finished Malachi and uh, sometimes I like to give myself one more week just to get ready for another major study uh, and Leviticus is coming. But here is... Uh, something which I've been thinking about and I thought perhaps would be uh, a good subject for a sermon, a topical sermon admittedly, which I don't typically do, but here we are. Uh, the occasional topical, topical sermon I think is, is justified. Uh, you might even call it a polemical sermon, a sermon which is directed in answer to uh, men and women whom I view are uh, opponents of the gospel and so often champion verses like verse 28 in opposition uh, to the true teaching of Scripture. And in particular, the idea and the growing impulse which is present in the church today is egalitarianism, which masquerades as the spirit of Christianity, which is, of course, nothing new. Egalitarianism today is just another word for uh, liberalism. And I say this is nothing new. If you think about the formation of the OPC, the liberals in Machen's day, that would have been in the 1920s and 30s, did the same thing. They felt as though the things that they were contending for, the central tenets of liberalism in those days, uh, were in fact true to the spirit of Christianity. And so they sought to prop up their teachings through the teachings of the Bible. And they were at pains to prove it was so, that what they were contending for was in fact Christianity. But on the other side of that, Machen was at pains to prove they were wrong. In fact, he wrote a famous book about it, Christianity and Liberalism, which uh, is surprisingly relevant a century later. And what he said was, and I would say the same thing about modern liberals uh, who are in the church, is that what they were contending for was nothing that even resembled Christianity, but it was a new religion altogether, what he called liberalism. Christianity and liberalism, not compatible, but incompatible religions. Two religions, in fact, which shared almost nothing in common. And anyone who understood the teaching of the Bible would have no trouble seeing this. But the same kind of thing is found today. You have men and women who are embracing the values of the day, and then they're trying to prop up those values and that system of values with the teaching of Scripture, pretending that what they are teaching is actually what Christ himself taught. 
And uh, the, the, the buzzword for that actually isn't egalitarianism. Egalitarianism is what stands behind it, but the buzzword is social justice. But the impulse which animates the entire thought world of social justice is the idea of egalitarianism. And egalitarianism often employs passages such as Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, where Paul says there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, and so on. The idea of this system is that all must be leveled into a radical sameness if there is to be true justice in the world, social justice. You have to eliminate the distinctions if you want to arrive at justice. And if there are any distinctions which are present in a society, those distinctions must be seen as either the result of injustice or as barriers to a true just society. And thus the path to social justice involves the removing of all such distinctions in society. And the way that has found its way into the church is, uh, is through verses such as these. Well, this is nothing new. It was the same idea. Uh, it is the idea which has animated socialism uh, ever since the 20th century and even before. I'm reading right now the horrors that it led to in the Soviet Union and the Russian gulags and Solzhenitsyn's the gulag archipelago. But the tragedy today, and I'm sure this was a tragedy in the 20th century as well, is that Christians of all people are falling for it. And when I say Christians, I'm not talking about Christians in other churches. I'm talking about Christians and pastors in Reformed churches, Christians and pastors in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. And they do so, let me say again, largely based upon a misunderstanding of what the Bible means, and especially the Apostle Paul when he speaks of the absence of distinctions in his letters. And let us be clear, he does often speak of the absence of distinctions. For instance, aside from the primary text here of the sermon, and again, this is admittedly a topical sermon, uh, you have not only what he says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, but you have him actually saying the phrase, there is no distinction. Chapter 10, verse 12 of Romans, he says, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is overall, uh, overall is rich to all who call upon him. And he says the same thing in chapter 3, verse 22. There is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And there is, uh, let us see, a way in which the gospel levels out mankind. And this is a very important theme in the book of Romans. It is a very important theme in the preaching of Paul. But in a very subtle and yet a disastrous way, Christians are sometimes guilty of broadening out this idea, which appeared in the preaching of Paul, that there is no distinction, and making it true in every sense and in every case, when in reality... It is true only in one sense. And the result is that they, uh, they being Christians, are sometimes more prone to accept teachings that they have really no business accepting. It should be easy, I would think, to spot a rat and see through the liberals today just as Machen did in his own day. And certainly far easier if we are clear on this point. And so let me try to help you here by delineating four kinds of distinctions, or as the sermon is entitled, different kinds of distinctions. 
And uh, ultimately, we will close with one kind of distinction which no longer distinguishes. But aside from that, we will find that all kinds of distinctions do in fact remain so that a Christian could never accept the tenets of social justice. Now, the first uh, of these are distinctions which are found in the world. Distinctions which are there because God has made them. We see this in the beginning of the world, that the earth was formless and void, and it was one great mass, you might say, of sameness. But that God created order by distinguishing the light from the darkness, the sea from the land, the different kinds of creatures, and man over them all. Uh, The word which occurs throughout that original chapter, Genesis chapter 1, is separated or distinguished. It's the same idea. He was making distinctions. And by making distinctions, he was creating order in the world. So that we might uh, say of Genesis chapter 1 that the work of creation was the work of making distinctions. The idea, the idea of sameness, therefore, is something which God himself seems to dislike. He delights in a rich variety in making distinctions and separations and then creating order out of such things. For example, the man is not like the beast of the field, but this is good, God says. It is good that man should be made to differ from the beasts. And likewise, and more to the point that this is especially hateful to the uh, proponents of egalitarianism in our own day, the man and the woman are made to differ in that original creation account. And in their difference arises their compatibility as husband and wife, especially as we see in Genesis chapter 2. It is not two men whom God says are to populate the world, but the man and his wife, which together possess the power of creating new life as husband and wife. But here in their differences, there is also a created order. They are not the same, but they are different. And out of this arises the order which God intended. The man is to rule the world, and the woman is given to him as his helper in this. The woman is to be the mother of all life, nurturing and populating the world and thus enabling man to fulfill his task in subduing the world. A rule which occurs by populating it. If you look at Genesis chapter 1 verse 28, you would see this. Subdue the world and fill it, God says, with your progeny. Now again, this is something which the world today seems to hate. The difference between the man and the woman In the sense that men uh, and women mean uh, by equality today, we would have to say the man and the woman are not equal. They're very different. But this is something which the Christian ought to rejoice in along with God. The difference along with the fundamental compatibility arising out of these differences between the man and the woman, especially seen in marriage. It is good that the woman is unlike the man. It is good that the man is unlike the woman. And when we come to the New Testament, we do not find that this distinction is somehow suddenly set aside by the gospel, but what we find is rather the reverse, that everywhere this distinction between the man and the woman is upheld and strengthened. So that uh, I think it would be fair to say that the effect of the gospel is not to eradicate the distinction between the man and the woman But again, it is to uphold it, and if anything, to strengthen our sense of it, which even the Pharisees, it seemed, had lost sight of, as they had lost sight of the importance of marriage.
And so, it doesn't make sense, uh, returning to Galatians chapter 3 verse 28, which is our primary text. I, I don't think we can seriously entertain uh, any notion that Paul there is somehow suggesting that these categories somehow, now in the context of the new covenant, have ceased, uh, uh, ceased to exist. When he says there's no Jew, there's no Gentile, uh, there's, no, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female. Now, he means something else, as we'll soon see. But elsewhere, we find him explicitly upholding the distinction and telling us, uh, specifically, the man and the woman, telling us that it is a point upon which our Christian witness depends. And it would not be difficult to point to many such passages in the New Testament. But this is not the only distinction that we find in the world God has made. We also find the distinction not only between the man and the woman, but parents and children. Something which is found at the beginning of the world. Adam and Eve having children. And which the Bible never once seems to suggest is a bad idea. Not just that parents should have children, but that the distinction between parents and children should be upheld. For instance, you come into the New Testament and you find Paul saying, Children, obey your parents and the Lord for this is right. Another distinction which is upheld in the New Testament. There are also distinctions in authority, which really strike uh, the heart of the egalitarian. What they hate uh, is not so much the presence of distinctions, but the authority that these distinctions uphold. For instance, going back to the husband and the wife or the parents and the children, it is out of these distinctions that God creates order in his world. And that order is preserved by enduing certain people with authority over others. So, for instance, parents together are to rule their children, not children ruling their parents. There is no equality there. The husband in the home is given final authority even over his wife and thus over the whole household. But it doesn't end there. If I were to summarize the teaching of the Bible, which is found also in the New Testament, there's also authority over the household, which is found in society. And there is also authority which is found in the church. And that uh, pesky word submit just keeps coming up over and over again. And all of us in our various stations and spheres are called to submit in one way or another. Not all are the same, Paul says. Uh, speaking specifically of the church, not uh, 1 Corinthians 12, which we read earlier. Not all are apostles, are they? Nor are all teachers or prophets. That is to say, not all occupy the same place in the, uh, the same station. Not all are given to rule. Some are called to submit in the church. And everywhere, straight through the Bible, this teaching is upheld. In every sphere of human existence, we find teaching upholding authority in the church, in the state and society, and in the home, by upholding these distinctions in station. Distinctions which God created in the world, and which have been maintained and developed throughout the development of history and the human race. And nowhere, I say again, do we get the sense... And if we do get this sense, I think we're misunderstanding the Bible, that Christ came into the world in order to abolish all of those distinctions and to establish a grand egalitarian socialist society in which no distinctions exist. Nowhere. Nowhere do we get that sense in the New Testament. But I could go even further with this thought, still under the first heading, the kinds of distinctions that you find in the world which God has made, and notice that there exists a rich variety in mankind, even among those who belong to the same class. A variety which makes equality as it is understood today, 
again, a, a fundamental sameness, which makes this neither possible nor desirable, as John Murray puts it. Neither possible nor desirable. Indeed, as Abraham Kuyper himself noticed, the problem with equality, again, as the egalitarians understand it, uh, either sameness or the absence of distinctions, Kuyper said, the problem with that is that I'm not even equal with myself from one day to the next. I am ever changing. I'm either getting better or worse all the time, just compared to myself. And when you multiply that by the total population of the world, you end up with an enormous variation in the human species. No two people are even remotely similar on the level of their own personality and personal development and growth, or perhaps a lack of growth. Perhaps they're moving backwards. So there exists an enormous range of differences and temperaments and disposition. We're all individuals, answerable to God for ourselves and for no one else. Of course, there are similarities between people, but even then, no one is the same. And my simple point in describing all of this variety in the world which God has made is to say that is God's design and that is God's intention and it's something that God says is good. It isn't something bad, it's good. Indeed, very good, God says. And the Christian ought to join God in saying this as well. Not just the world which he has made, but the world, the order of the world that he has made is good. One of the ways that I would illustrate this point, again, the variety that exists uh, on the total spectrum of humanity. And I remember uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones often emphasizing this in his sermons, is that a man who is converted, while he is a new creation in one sense, and even a new person, the New Testament would say, is still in another sense the same person. In this sense, that he retains his, his basic personality and temperament. He remains an individual. And this will continue to, de to determine important things about him, such as his strengths and his struggles. A man whom, uh, uh, who, like Peter, is easily excitable before his conversion will continue to ret retain this trait after conversion. The difference that conversion makes is not that Peter, the man, is not excitable. The difference that conversion makes is that now he is far less prone to sin in his basic nature. And he is far less prone to be ruled by his flesh. But the flesh is still there. His basic human nature and individuality. And these differences in personality and temperament continue to exist in the church, even as they exist in the world. And so here is the first class of distinctions and differences in humanity. Those which are created by God and which nowhere in the Bible are erased. Nowhere. If anything, and I think I've said this already, we find that as the Bible goes on, these things become much clearer and stronger. And certainly the effect of the gospel is not to eradicate them. But let me notice a second class of distinctions. And here we narrow our focus to the church herself. Distinctions which are found not in the world, but in the church among the saved. Now, I briefly mentioned some of these already from 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Not all are prophets, not all are apostles and so forth. The teaching of 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is that there is a diversity of gifts, but the same spirit. 
the same Spirit who equips and animates every Christian. In this there is no distinction, but the same Spirit, he says, and the same experience. All who confess Jesus as Lord do so by the same Holy Spirit. But in this common experience of the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit brings about a rich variety in the church. Distinctions in office. Distinctions in gifts. Not all have the same gift, he says. Not all hold the same office. And even those old distinctions found in the created order. We find in the New Testament church that those are upheld as well. For instance, not in 1 Corinthians 12, but in 1 Corinthians 11 and in many other places we find that women are not to be an authority in the church of God. They are not to teach. And why is that? Not because they have any sort of lesser place in the kingdom of God. Their place is the same as we will see. But it's because of the point that we've already considered that God created the woman with a specific purpose in mind. And that was not to rule, but to nurture life and to help man in his task, task to rule. And so what we find in the teaching of the New Testament is that that place is upheld in the church since it was God's idea and design in the first place. And this, too, is something the Christians should rejoice in rather than resent, as so many Christians today, it seems, do resent. Because we realize that the church does not exist in a vacuum, but it exists in the world that God has made. And so, of course, the order which God has made would be reflected in the visible expression of his kingdom in this world. God's basic purposes for humanity in creation are now being realized in the church. Of course, of course. He doesn't suddenly now say that which he said was good at the beginning is now bad. No, it's still good. It's good uh, that the man and the woman should differ. It's good for them to be married and to have children. It's good even for men to rule and for women to submit to that rule and to help the men in it. This is a distinction which is very good. It is good for men. It is good for women. It is good for the children. And it's good for the church and for the world. But there are also, I'm still looking narrowly at the church, there are differences beyond these in graces. Difference in, uh, in office, difference in station, difference in gifts, but difference in graces as well. We do not have uh, the same gift or place in the church. Not all are the same. That is uh, the clear teaching of 1 Corinthians 12. But the same is true of grace, which is also clearly taught in the New Testament. Some Christians excel in one grace, others in another. One man, for instance, abounds in assurance and faith, another in joy and holiness. There are not only different degrees of sanctification present in each, but there are also different kinds of sanctification at work in each believer. All of us have different besetting sins, different trials from the Lord, different victories and defeats. The Christian life will look very different for each one of us. And I suggest to you that that is in fact something which is very good. The rich variety of experience, the experience of grace which each Christian experiences in the church. God weaving together, whether uh, speaking in 1 Corinthians 12 or Ephesians chapter 4, something very strong, one body, strong, enduring by parts which are vastly different in every way. 
But then thirdly, there are, let us see, distinctions which arise from sin. Differences in humanity which God did not create or intend for humanity, but which arise from sin and and have the effect of disrupting the order he has made. And so not all distinctions are good. Some are very bad, in fact. Things such as tyranny of one over another. If you think, for instance, of the relation perhaps between the husband and the wife or the state to its citizens. That distinction is not always good, but on account of sin, uh, it can become a very bad and abusive kind of relationship. Or if you just think of the harmony that God intended for humanity, the estrangement of friends or brothers, that is a distinction which sin brings about. Or the hostilities which arise between nations and so forth. Mankind at odds with itself. Men uh, who are hateful, hating one another, as Paul says in Titus. None of this is natural. None of it is God's intention for mankind. It all comes by the way of sin. And here it is true that the gospel brings healing. I think we saw that in the last Malachi sermon, or maybe it was the second to last. I don't remember, but uh, but that, that the fathers and the sons would together be brought together who were estranged by sin. Certainly the gospel brings reconciliation not only between God and man, but between man and man. And that is a point that we will soon see. But even when we begin to say uh, that, you know, there are distinctions which the gospel obliterates and that it overcomes, let us be sure that we know the difference between differences which arise from sin and those which do so uh, by God himself. For the gospel does not eradicate those. It does not eradicate distinctions which God makes in the world or in the church. But only those which exist on account of sin. But that leads me finally to distinctions which arise on account of the gospel. And yes, even then, there are distinctions to be made. Even though I know Paul says there's no distinction. Well, we'll get to that. But there is a real sense in which the gospel brings distinction. For instance, the difference the gospel makes between men. The difference between the saved and the unsaved. The believer and the unbeliever. Here is what Christ refers to as the sword of division. Which separates mankind into two classes in the eyes of God. And this is something which is evident every day. And will especially become evident, Jesus tells us, on the last day when he separates the goat Uh, The goats from the sheep. Here is a difference. Jesus tells us that may even lead a man to forsake his nearest and dearest relations. If only he might follow Christ and join the church. Another way to make this point. The difference that the gospel makes. Is that the way men are saved differs greatly. And what I mean by this. I remember reading. Uh, in Thomas Brooks' Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, that uh, the experience of salvation differs from one man to the next. One man, he says, is saved by the law, and in his proud and stubborn heart must be broken. Another man, uh, in the tenderness of his uh, fearful heart, is saved by the gospel. One man by the law, another by the gospel. Or one man in early age, Perhaps even in infancy, another at the end of life. The experience of each, again, is vastly different in our experience of salvation. Another way to distinguish this, 
is that some are saved gradually, another are saved at all at once. It's amazing to consider the rich variety which, uh, which exists here, the many ways that men find their way into the kingdom of God. But having said all of that, there is one way in which distinctions vanish entirely. As to one thing in particular, there is no difference whatsoever. There is something which, in the face of all distinctions, vanish. Two categories which are present in the preaching of the gospel, which both have the effect of leveling out mankind. And that is the realities of sin and salvation, which were so prevalent in Paul's preaching. And it was in preaching those two points, sin and salvation, that he could say, there is no distinction, none whatsoever. First, there is no distinction as to sin and the guilt of sin. He, he would say, uh, and he does say in Romans chapter 3 verses 22 and 23, for there is no distinction, all have fallen short of the glory of God. With respect to sin, there is no distinction. All men stand on the same, on the same footing before God. All alike are in the face of his law are held accountable are judged guilty and condemned as sinners. None are holy, none are righteous. Of course, there may be differences in the degree as to their sin and guilt, but it all, Paul says, amounts to the same thing in the end, especially in the face of the preaching of the law and the preaching of the gospel. Again, all men falling in the same category and standing on the the same footing before God. All fall short. None deserve to be saved. None deserve to be justified in his sight. All stand in need of grace equally and alike as sinners if they would be saved. And that was always the concern of Paul in his preaching to show his hearers that none were exempt. None. Not a single one. There was nothing that was true about you, whether you were a Jew or a Greek or a man or a woman. None of these things would help you to get into the kingdom of God. Nor would any of these things stand in the way. You say, but I'm a Gentile woman. What does that matter, Paul says? Or he says to the proud Jewish man, do you think that that will help you into the kingdom of God? Do you not realize that it is the law of God that crushes you every bit as much as that Gentile whom you despise? In the face of the law of God, there isn't a single advantage that any of us can claim. Not a single one. All of us alike stand condemned and in need of the grace of salvation offered in the gospel. There is no distinction. All have fallen short of the glory of God. No difference whatsoever. But likewise, that is in the matter of sin, in the matter of salvation itself on the other side of this. We might also say, and Paul would say, no distinction, no difference. There isn't any such thing in the face of the gospel as a Jew or a Gentile or a man or a woman. We just sang a hymn from the free offer of the gospel. This is what we're considering here. The gospel is offered to mankind, is offered to all alike equally in just the same way. You don't have to accommodate your message depending on if you're on the other side of town preaching in a black church or over here in a white church. It doesn't make any difference. It doesn't make any difference. It's the same gospel for all. It's the same gospel for all. That's what Paul means when he says, I read it earlier uh, in, in Romans chapter 10, verse 12. And I hope you see the truth of what I'm saying confirmed when I read this again. 
For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord over all, uh, the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon Him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so also when He says in Galatians chapter 3 verse 28, there's no Jew, neither Jew nor Greek, neither male nor female, uh, neither slave nor free. It's the same point. No distinction. None. These are things which ceased to exist among Christians considered as such. Who, in other words, Paul is asking, especially in Galatians chapter 3, who is my brother in Christ? Well, he may be a Jew or a Greek. Or he, uh, your, my, my brother might be a sister in Christ, a she, or a slave or a free. These are not the things, beloved, which determine whether someone is my brother or whether he has a place in the church or whether he can be saved. It is in that sense that Paul is saying there's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free. No, so far as I'm concerned, there are only Christians. And then on the other side, those who are not Christians. There are those who are in Christ, the sons of God, those who have faith, verse 26. And then there are those who do not have faith. And so this is what Paul has in mind when he says there is no distinction and that the differences which he speaks of and which we admit exist amount to nothing in the church. He's not suggesting that such things do not really exist as though the Jew who is saved or the man who is saved ceases to be what he was. But he is suggesting that they do not matter in the matters of sin and salvation. What matters simply is this, is a man in Christ and does he have faith? Verse 26, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. The one who has faith is a son of God. And when that is true of him, well, then he could say, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. Going back a verse, verse 27, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. You are now in Christ and that is what matters, he says, if you have faith. That is the only thing which matters when asking who is the Christian? Who are the true sons of God? And who are those who have a true place in the church? All are one who are in Christ, he says. They stand on the same ground. They enjoy the same status and privileges as the sons of God. They enjoy, in that sense, let us say, equality. But that is the great point we must grasp. It isn't that the the effect of the gospel is to suggest that there's no such thing as a man or a woman. It's so absurd to even say it, but people are actually saying that now. And and you could see how Christians uh, might even begin to fall prey to that sooner or later. Or that these other things which distinguish mankind have ceased to exist as well. We've even seen how these things play a part in the functioning of the church itself. But these things, let me say again have no bearing, no bearing on how a man is saved. And they have no bearing on how he views others who enjoy the same salvation. The same Lord, again, Paul, chapter uh, chapter 10, verse 12 of Romans, the same Lord is the Lord of all. He invites and accepts all who come to him in faith. He doesn't, in other words, first ask what is true of you. 
before he determines whether he's willing to accept you. He only asks this question, coming back to the free offer of the gospel, which is where this point has relevance. Will you but come? Will you but come unto me, ye sinners, and be saved? Ye weary. Hymn number 405, which we just sung together before the sermon. Will you but come? And all who call upon my name, he says, will be saved. Romans chapter 10, verse 13. All. None will be exempted. None will be excluded. All will be welcome to come in faith. In this there are no distinctions. None. In the preaching of the gospel. In offering salvation in Christ, Paul says, going back to earlier chapter, uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 14. I am a debtor to all. All alike, equally, Jew, Gentile, whomever. The wise and the unwise, he says. All men alike stand in need of this salvation. And I'm prepared to give it to them if only they will accept it. And if only they will accept that all of them stand alike in need of it equally. There isn't a single person in the whole world who doesn't need the gospel of Jesus Christ preached to him. And there isn't a single person in the whole world who, having accepted the gospel, will not enjoy the full rights and privileges of Christian fellowship and thus membership in the church. And it is in light of that point that I ask you, and it really was this point that so thrilled the soul of the Apostle Paul, do you see the glory of the gospel, beloved, in this point? It really is the most wonderful truth, the same gospel for all. But do you also see, returning uh, to, to uh, the more polemical element, uh, polemics, by the way, if you don't know, uh, children means argument. Do you not see at the same time how this truth can so easily be dis- distorted? And let us also see that the gospel doesn't come in and say that these distinctions don't exist. That isn't Paul's point. He isn't saying there's no such thing as a Jew or a Gentile, a man or a woman. But the gospel rather says that these things do not matter in the eyes of God with respect to salvation. And they do not determine whether a man can be saved or whether he can be a Christian. They do not give him an advantage, nor do they, uh, nor any disadvantage. And yes, I will say again, among those who are saved, there exists a wonderful equality understood in the true sense But don't go too far with this. Don't fall prey to those who are suggesting today that distinctions of all kinds do not matter. As though there can only be justice where there are no distinctions. That is not true justice. That is not social justice. Nor is it the teaching of the Bible. They may quote these verses, especially this verse, all they like. They have not proved their point. These are verses, beloved, Let me underline this point as I close. Romans chapter 10 verse 12. Galatians chapter 3 verse 28. These are verses which may be employed by Christians only in the service of the preaching of the gospel. Only in the service of the free offer of the gospel and evangelism. And it's free offer to all alike equally. And then the equal status that all they enjoy together in the fellowship of the saints having accepted it. And so is the basis of a truly Christian fellowship. But they go no farther. And so in this, as I close, I would put it like this.
Let us be sure in the preaching of the gospel that our hearts are as broad as the Apostle Paul's. But also as we look to this point in its application more broadly, that our hearts are also as narrow. Amen. And let us now, as we return thanks to our God in a hymn of response, stand together and sing hymn number 392. Hymn number 392.